We tell kids what to wear, when to wear it, what to eat, when to eat, where to sit, when to sit, what to say, when to move. They don't have a lot of power or control over their own bodies because of our own adult agenda. We need the kids to just fall in line and then when they don't, we give them the labels. They're difficult, they're disruptive, they're defiant. Welcome to the Beautifully Complex podcast, where I share insights and strategies on parenting neurodivergent kids straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Beautifully Complex podcast. I'm really excited to be talking to occupational therapist, Greg Santucci today about regulation versus compliance and the outcomes that we get from those and which is better, which I hope my regular listeners already know the answer to that, and what we can do to focus on those things that are much more helpful and kind of get rid of, cast aside some of those old beliefs and old ways of looking at behavior Thanks so much for being here, Greg. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. I know that we have a lot of the same values and beliefs when it comes to this stuff, so it's going to be such a fun conversation. Will you start just by letting everybody know who you are and what you do? Sure, and thanks for having me. Well, you said my name right, Greg Santucci. I'm an occupational therapist. I've been an OT for 22 years now. Mm. I am the founding director of PowerPlay Pediatric Therapy. I'm talking to you from New Jersey today. I am also the supervisor of OT at Children's Specialized Hospital in New Jersey. I've been lecturing nationally and consulting internationally now for over a decade. I think my most important credential is that I'm a dad. Hmm. I have two kids of my own. I have two teenagers. So I'm really in that parenting thick zone right now Mm -hmm. and enjoying every minute of it and being challenged at every minute of it. But as an OT, I love talking about regulation. I love talking about sensory processing and how that influences behavior. And yes, we are very much aligned in, in the way we think in the literature we reference. So I'm excited to dive in. Yeah. So let's dive in then. Let's talk about what is compliance And what is regulation and why are they different? I think in general, when you're talking about having somebody comply, we we all know what compliance is, is is do what I say. Mm -hmm. When we talk about regulation, I can dip into some of Stuart Schenker's work when he talks about regulation is dealing with a stressor, some stressor, positive or negative, and then dealing with that efficiently and effectively and then returning back to a level of being focused and alert. Sometimes I hesitate using the word calm. Mm. It works on some levels. And then I think of Michael Jordan taking that game-winning shot back in the 90s. And and he certainly was not calm, but he was regulated when that shot went in. Mm. So regulation is more of understanding your internal state and moving forward from there versus compliance is just somebody telling you what to do. Yeah, I think of calm in this instance and the way we talk about it and being regulated as kind of being at peace and, you know, your body and your mind and your feelings are sort of in harmony (laughs) and that sort of thing. So it's beyond just like this idea of 
being serenely yeah, calm, right? Right, <laughs> right. We right, can right. certainly feel great and also be high energy, mm-hmm. as you were talking about, right? Yeah. OTs love talking about energy levels. And, you know, there's high energy levels, there's low energy levels, and you're at your best when your energy level matches the energy level of the demand or whatever the task that it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So some things call for high energy level. Some things yep. you need that. That's a positive thing. Yep. At other times, you know, being super activated is not right. great. It does not feel yep. good, right? And <laughs> that's such a good distinction to make because we have to yeah. talk about both the energy and also kind of this idea of pleasantness and safety. I wanted to backtrack a second and talk about compliance a little bit more, though, because I think that there's also this idea of sameness when we talk about compliance, especially in the school environment. You know, if we want you to comply to doing what what the group is doing, what everyone is doing in that environment, and that can be really, really hard for kids who are different and they learn differently and they express themselves differently and all these things then they're seen as non-compliant, even though they're just kind of being themselves and they want to do good. They want to follow instructions, right? So I just wanted to add that little bit to it. Absolutely. And yes, yeah, schools are, are definitely a different beast. I mean, we have schedules and, and we need schedules and structure, but at the same time, a, a kid may not be regulated for that 1020 math class. Mm-hmm. And you can try to push ahead with that math lesson, but I would submit that you're better off focusing on making sure that that kid is regulated or that kid's energy level matches the energy level of said math lesson. You'll be much more successful getting that lesson in. Yeah. In terms of compliance and like from a parenting standpoint, like we tell kids what to wear, when to wear it, what to eat, when to eat, where to sit, when to sit, what to say, when to move. What to believe. Yes. We don't, they don't have a lot of power or control over Mm -mm. their own bodies. And and that's where a lot of our compliance based and behavior based strategies come in. We're just, we're telling kids what to do because of our own adult agenda. We need the kids to just fall in line. And then when they don't, we give them the labels. They're difficult. They're disruptive. They're defiant. Mm-hmm. They're challenging. And then we use all of these behavioral strategies to try to get them back to being compliant so we can achieve our adult goals. I think that's where the real shift has to happen. That, you know, if we see a kid is, for lack of a better word, being bad, we're going to use behavioral strategies to reward, bribe, or punish them to make them be good. Yep. But when you're talking about regulation, and you can identify and you have the skills and the tools to identify that a kid is dysregulated and now you're focused on helping them get regulated. Well, I just said the magic word, you're helping them. Yes. Helping them get regulated versus bribing them or threatening them to comply is the game changer that you and I and and a lot of people out there are preaching right now. Yeah. One of the biggest distinctions between compliance and regulation for me that really came up when you were talking is that in compliance, we don't take into account who that kid is, where they are, what's going on with them, nothing. They're just sort of this nondescript box, right? And when we look at, okay, are they regulated or dysregulated? Now we're saying, I want to understand what's going on for them. I want to see them clearly, this individual. 
I want to help them, right? right? And then, you know, seeing and hearing kids and having kids feel validated and understood makes a monumental difference in behavior. If you put that in our adult world, we all like to be heard Mm -hmm. and be validated. So shocking how somehow we've neglected to consider that in kids because of some hierarchy we put on there that, that we outrank them, we know better, we've been where they are already. But a lot of these these strategies that are used, whether it's taking away a kid's phone or taking away video games or moving their clip or taking away recess, you know, we have to stop and think, you know, how does that make them feel? Does it make them feel heard? No. And, and that would make us feel terrible. So I'm fortunate enough that I, you know, I talk to a ton of kids every week and I ask them, especially in the schools, about you know, these clip charts and these rewards and missing recess and everything like that. And they tell you, it's not fair. Yeah, It's just not fair. Or they think either their mom or dad or their teacher was being mean to them because most of the time the behaviors are not volitional. It's, it's out of their control. It's more of a body or a brain issue. And what we're really doing is we're threatening the trust in the relationship. Mm. And if you don't have the trust of your child or your student, that's a big problem. Yeah, huge problem. There's no buy-in. You can never have buy-in if you don't have trust. Yeah, so you're never going to succeed, again, at that whole do-as-I-say compliance (laughs) route if you don't have trust. Right. Yeah, and to me, the difference is so clear, but I think we just get stuck in the way that we've always done things for so long, and we have sort of this generational perpetuation of the way we parent and what we should expect of kids and how we should see kids and define them. And, you know, we think that they're a reflection of us, so they must do as we say, and they must put, you know, a good foot forward out in the world because, you know, people are judging me based on what my kid does and all these things that just don't matter. Like, we all love our kids. And, by parenting them through that compliance or authoritarian model doesn't really show it to them. Yeah, this is where I defend parents and knowing how hard this struggle is. And Mm -hmm. Mona Delahook does a great job of talking about not blaming and shaming parents or teachers, which is funny because a lot of what we do with our behavioral strategies is blaming and shaming kids, and we're okay with that. Um, Right. but (laughs) But in terms of, you know... Parenting is hard. There is no manual. As soon as you throw in something like autism or ADHD, you know, it gets more complicated and you you have to have the tools and the skills. I went into this and I was already an OT for a long time before I became a dad. And there was still so much unlearning that I had to do. Yeah. And the parent guilt that comes with it and the amount of repairing that I had to do. And it's important to repair and and you have to be brave enough to be able to say to your kid, you know what? I lost it then. I messed up. And and you repair that and you move forward. So for years and years of committing to this model, I screwed up all the time. So it's a journey, but there are, you know, little things that you can do to unlearn what past generations did to us or what we were exposed to in our childhood to just do right by our kids. I agree with you. The teachers love their kids. The parents love their kids. That's not the question. It's just doing better than the generations before us because we have new knowledge now about how the brain works. 
Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is that when you know better, you do better. Yep. And, you know, when you didn't know better, you have to give yourself some grace. So we all sort of parent through instinct and the ways that we grew up or the people who are around us and those examples until we know better. Mm-hmm. And teachers are not typically educated on neurodivergence. They don't have to learn about ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, not even dyslexia, which is so common, to become a teacher. So it's not that they don't care, it's that they don't know. They don't know what to do with our kids when when they're not being compliant. I mean, let's boil it down. They don't know what to do when that thing that that they're told is what you do and that's the expectation that every kid should meet. When that doesn't happen, they just don't know a lot of the times. And so I think that's a big part of why we do the work that we do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And they're outnumbered. Totally. Teachers outnumbered 20 to 1, 30 to 1, and they don't feel supported. Yep. And what do I do when I've got 20 kids that I've got to push through and I'm being measured on how they do on a test and I've got you know, one kid calling out every chance he gets and another kid flopping on the floor. So that's where when you're out, it's it's close to impossible, but it can be done. But the first thing that I do when I walk into a classroom and it's just one teacher and 20 kids is you better partner with those kids. If you try to control them, you're not going to win. So if you you take the time to build a community where everybody's working together and and co-regulating together, (laughs) you're going to have a lot more success of getting that lesson in. Yeah, I love that you use the word community. Like that just sets the tone of collaboration and that we're all Mm -hmm. in this together, right? And that we each have a part to play. But I think it recognizes that we're all different too. I love using that term. I wanted to talk a little bit. You said, how does it make them feel? And what popped into my head was a lot of parents saying, why does that matter? (laughs) Why does it matter how my kid feels if... I told them to get their shoes on because we're late for school and I'm going to be late for work and then I'm going to get fired. Why does it matter how my kid feels right then? So in that situation, you're you're telling your kid a thousand times to get their shoes on. They're not getting their shoes on. The bus is going to be there any minute. And yes, you have to arrive at work. It may end for you when mm-hmm. the kid gets on the bus and you get to work. It does not end for your child. Yes. Your child is now walking into school dysregulated, although their clip will say they're in green and they're ready to learn, which is a lot. <laughs> they're that is coming so true. in. Yeah, they're coming in stressed. They're coming in with mom or dad yelling at them, and they feel that and they own that, and they're not going to have their best day. And then the behavioral challenges come, the teachers wondering what's going on, and all this back and forth. So again, it's two human beings. Yes. So it may end for you when they get on the bus, but that kid is holding on to that. Yeah. And so often it doesn't end for us either. You know, as a parent of a kid with school avoidance and refusal for many, many, many years, mm-hmm. you know, it colors your day. Like yeah. sometimes the struggle, you're dysregulated too as the adult, right. you know, and right. you have to deal with that as well. But, you know, those feelings matter because that builds trust, right? Like there's so many things that we do by taking into account our kids' feelings and just to validate them and show empathy really changes behavior in a lot of ways. It's kind of magical (laughs) when you use it appropriately, but it really sets that relationship, which is super valuable when we talk about regulation, right? Our relationship, parent to child, teacher to child, professional to child, 
that matters, right? Right. And we have first crack at regulation because we have a fully developed frontal lobe. Yes. So when we're talking about this back and forth, our initial reaction is going to set the trajectory for how this event turns out so that if somehow we can check ourselves and just not let our emotions overpower us and we can just take a second to pause and kind of go through what is this other human being in front of me communicating to me, conveying to me, what do I have to hear in order to connect? That is the start of again, changing the trajectory. So it's on us as adults first to get to that regulated state before we interact so that we don't just explode on them and it becomes a power struggle. That's hard. That's Mm -hmm. where a lot of my energy went for during my parenting journey initially. And it's extraordinarily powerful and, and very peaceful when you can just take a second and be like, okay, they just cursed at me. Um, you know, let me let me step back for a second and then approach. Total game changer. Oh, yeah. Totally. Because now we're responding instead of reacting. Okay. Now we're being mindful instead of also being dysregulated, honestly, you know. And I know you've, you've referenced Ross Green's work before. Mm-hmm. And how powerful is that to just notice that somebody's having a hard time first to start the conversation with, with, hey, I, I see what's going on. I noticed that you're having a hard time. What's going on? Like, that's amazing. It's such a great start as opposed to don't talk to me that way or however we react from a dysregulated state. Yep. Yeah. And it's so much different. Like those outcomes mm-hmm. are so much different between sort of responding in kind, yelling and screaming and slamming or whatever's happening versus giving them some calm to borrow, giving them some calm to attune to. I want to talk a little bit about how does a parent know if their child is regulated or dysregulated? Or how would a teacher know when that kid walks in the classroom in the morning? Are they really on green or are they already having a bad day? Are they already dysregulated? So... If they're dysregulated, it could look a lot of different ways. It could be that they're just like, I mean, you can use different descriptors. They can be disconnected. They could just be off. They can be bouncing off the walls, you know, their their heads down on the table. You know, a lot of times you can read it in a kid's face. You can see their mm-hmm. eyebrows or, or what their eyes are looking at. If they just seemed a little bit stressed, if they're having a hard time getting started, on something, that's often a sign. So there's a lot of different ways a kid could be dysregulated, either high or low. I think a a kid who's bouncing off the wall, it's pretty clear cut that they're dysregulated. A kid who's kind of zoned out and still thinking about their parent yelling at them in the morning may be a little bit harder to pick up on. But Mm -hmm. if they're not engaged in the activity or they're not participating to the level that they're used to, it's a good assumption that you may want to put your regulation hat on and do a little digging. Yeah. And understanding, I think the different types of dysregulation can be helpful too to understand like there's, you know, fight, flight, mm-hmm. and then there's sort of freeze and shut down, right? And those are two different, just as you were saying, they're two different modes. Right. My colleague and partner in the behavior evolution, Sarah Whalen, she talks about how she has two kids who are neurodivergent, two boys, and one was 
that shut down our freeze kid and they really didn't realize that he was dysregulated for a long time Mm -hmm. because he seemed compliant, right? Nobody was complaining because he seemed compliant. And then her second kid comes along and they call him a very effective self-advocate because he was the, you know, sort of explosive. You could see it clearly when he was dysregulated, right? So there's different sort of forms, for lack of a better word, of dysregulation. The uh, the fly under the radar kids. Yeah. it's Again, especially, we keep going back to schools, but those are the kids that the teachers may miss because, again, they're not the ones falling out of the chair. Um, yeah. They're not the ones that are disruptive. So that's when you have a group of kids. For a teacher, that for them could be the win, that that's not a kid that's going to draw your attention away from what you're trying to accomplish. Right. But those are the kids that we need to have our detective lenses on and connect with them and see what's going on. So yeah, so a kid who's who's not engaged, their head is down, they're spaced out, they're just not participating to the level that we're used to seeing. Uh, those are the kids that you need to get closer to and not just assume that everything's fine because they're not being disruptive. Right. Those kids so often fall through the cracks. I think they fall through the cracks at school, but they also fall through the cracks with parents sometimes. Yes. We just don't recognize that super low energy level and the sort of disengagement is a red flag. Yes. And you brought up a great point. And on some level, I can recognize this in my own household is that when you do have multiple kids who have, you know, multiple regulation categories, if you will, it's very easy for the high energy disruptive one to get all the attention. Um, And we have to be very careful of that. Yes. So yes, when you have multiple kids in a household, obviously multiple kids in a class, we have to be mindful of that and check in equally in terms of what their regulation state is. 100%. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about checking in. How do we check in with a kid? You know, some of them, like we're just saying, it's very clear. They give us clear signals. (laughs) And others may not, but in either case, I think we have to check in. We have to say, okay, what's going on for you? Maybe how can I help? What do you need? Sure. And so I'll go right to my son. My son's 13. He's a gamer. Mm -hmm. And he would, if he could, completely run his own world. It would be Minecraft, Roblox, Valorant, Fortnite, 24, 25 hours a day. Yep. Stay in his room. All of his friends are online. Yep. So he's got his social network. So how I used to check in with him was I used to just go up there and be present. That's the first thing. So I go into their world. I learn about the games that he's playing. I say hi to his friends online because they're his classmates. But I go into their world. And that will allow me to learn the language and the the things that he's interested in. And it makes it's a, a great way to connect, but it gives me a lot of information about you know, what's going on in his world. So I check in by, again, I have to be careful. I have two teenagers. So I'm kind of like icky parent right now. Stay away from me. I have to find that balance of not being this hovering parent and yet showing interest in their special interests. I don't necessarily have to do a lot of talking. I just have to be there. And, you know, a couple of poignant questions here and there starts a great dialogue. And then you take it from there. I tell parents all the time, know what they're playing, know who they're talking to, you know, know who they're emulating on on YouTube and who they're watching. You're going to learn a ton 
And it's just going to help connect with them, build your relationship, show them that you are interested in their interests, and it just makes dialogue easier. Yeah, and that connection breeds regulation. Yes. (laughs) You know, it all keeps coming back to that. Yes. I think it's so important to just show kids that we're interested and who they are and what they're doing, right? That has right. its own powerful impact. And honestly, I don't care about Roblox or Fortnite or Valorant. I, I just, it, yeah. And and the people they watch on YouTube, sometimes I'm horrified. <laughs> but yeah. I still I still go there. I could put that in a box and close it in my head and compartmentalize that because it's their special interests. But Roblox isn't my thing. You know, I'm old, but that's okay. Ditto. And I have a similar kid who would game 24-7. All his friends are online. And, you know, it's his world. And both my kids actually were into gaming and still are as young adults. And I definitely didn't do my best in that area for a long time because, you know, they were both talkers when they were little, like super talkers. And I got so tired about hearing about Minecraft and right because it wasn't (laughs) my thing. And I just like, could I take any more? And instead, I really should have been showing interest. And they probably maybe would have had less to talk about if I'd shown interest. Like they wouldn't have just gone on and on. But showing interest is so valuable. And I don't think we do it enough. We can be interested in knowing what they're interested in and not be interested in the actual thing that they're interested right. in, right? Right. And that's the key. You just triggered a story for me. Uh, a little autistic boy that I'm working with recently, and you know, I had met him for the first time, and he's a numbers guy. Everything is numbers and times and watches and what time is it and how many minutes. And you know, he would run to his parents and his parents would like cover their watches and try to remove all numbers from his world because they were just annoyed by the the special interest of these these numbers. And, you know, in school, I'm learning that they took the clocks down because he kept looking at the clocks. And I'm like, everybody's trying to eliminate his special interest. And I just went the other way with it. And so meeting him for the first time and not really knowing where this was going to go and his parents just thinking that he was going to manipulate me into making everything about numbers, I went there with him. And I used his special interest as a tool for me. And we pinned some numbers to things. And he just looked at me like, you're awesome. And so (laughs) I was like, wow, you like numbers too. And what I had brought up to the parent by the end of a one hour session is that for the last 20 minutes or so, he didn't mention numbers at all. That we Mm -hmm. were just doing our thing. And I did because that's his special interest. And I knew that he liked it. So I knew that I I had this as a little check-in with him. And it was just, it was such a wonderfully powerful session, but it was a 180 from what everybody else was doing. Like, okay, he's perseverating on this, so let's just try to limit it versus embracing it and using it to build a relationship. And then, you know, I didn't lose control at all. Nobody was undermined during this. And uh, the kid left saying that I was his new best friend. And I was like, yeah, dude. You're number one to me because you like numbers. So I'm just going to call you number one. I was just going to say the other piece of that is that numbers are his comfort. Yes. Right. And when you take that away, all you're doing is increasing his anxiety and making him less regulated and less able to do things. Right. Right. To meet expectations, to do things. So when you embrace it and you lean into it, you're making him more comfortable. And when he's super comfortable, 
Now maybe he doesn't have to look at the clock every second, every two seconds, right? So there's so many layers to that too. And I mentioned before about like reading a kid's face, like you saw it in his Mm -hmm. face. You saw, you know, his eyebrows relaxed and his eyes just had this glow and his, his eye contact was like right on me just organically. Like he was just like, you have me. You're my friend. I trust you. Let's go. Yeah. You know, and I wish that for his parents and his teachers. And I would submit to them, try this, you know, validate him. And you're seeing it work. Like you you just saw it work. I had never met the kid before. And you just saw it work. So why not try it? Don't just say, oh, that's just a Mr. Greg thing. It's not. It's a that kid thing. And go with it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about last, which is how do we start shifting from compliance to regulation, shift from focusing on compliance to focusing on regulation. And I think, you know, one of those steps is to be open and willing to do things differently. Absolutely. I have to go back to the, because you you kind of triggered me a little bit with the whole shoe thing and getting on the bus. Um, And I'm an OT, so I have to talk about sensory processing a little bit. So I have a son who sometimes I think their ears are broken, especially when they're gaming. Mm -hmm. So I could tell him that's using his auditory sense to put his shoes on a thousand times. It's not getting in. He's over-focused on what he was doing. So I always talk about changing the sensory channel. So if his ears aren't working use a different sense. We all know the five senses. There's a few more. That's for a different podcast. Um, So when his auditory sense isn't his strong sense, and I will say that when a child is dysregulated, their auditory sense is not their strongest sense. Their hearing can actually go offline. But if I walked upstairs to my son and handed him his shoes which is touch, that's its tactile sense, and he would see them, that's vision, he would put his shoes on. Or if I were to put the first shoe on him and then say, here, put the other one on and hand it to him. I'm using different senses then. So I encourage parents to change the sensory channel that if their auditory sensory channel is not working, that doesn't mean get louder and start yelling. That means change the sense so that can help a kid get focused, get, you know, connect with you and get the job done. So that's my first example. I super wish I had known that 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> All the begging, right? Yeah. I don't want to say stop talking to your kids, but it's basically what I'm saying is when they're dysregulated, yes. stop talking to your kids. They can't hear you. Yes. There's biological brain science behind that. Their thinking brain is not online when they're dysregulated. Right. (laughs) So all the talking in the world is just like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's just not doing anything or it's escalating. It's making them more overwhelmed. Correct. Yeah. and, And I talk to so many parents who are really concerned about the fact that their kid can't just get it all done themselves. My kid's 12. He should be able to this or that. And my first point is always you're shooting. And you shouldn't should, (laughs) (laughs) you know, your kid is not 12 developmentally in a lot of ways. They're lagging. And so it's so simple and it feels better to us too. It's not just about our kids, but when we shift from nagging to taking, you know, 30 seconds to walk upstairs and hand them a shoe, 
it's just so different. It's a different experience for everyone, and it's better for all of us. It doesn't necessarily take a lot of time. Mm -mm. Everything that we've talked about today doesn't cost any money. Nope. You know, changing the sensory channel doesn't involve some big curriculum or some big chart that you have hanging on the wall that you've had to make some do-it-yourself thing. And it is validating where the child is and moving forward from there. But yes, it feels better for everyone. So we're moving from a kid feeling that it's unfair, a kid feeling that we're being mean to them, you know, Mm. the threat of a trusting relationship like we talked about before, to being connected and partnering with your child and everybody benefiting from that. So this isn't permissive. This isn't, you know, just letting the kid do whatever they want. That You are partnering mm-hmm. with your child and moving together towards getting whatever done you had to. And it's extremely powerful. And when it's hard at first, it took me a very long time. I can speak now with two teenagers that it was so worth the effort. Oh, yeah. That I feel the benefit so much. And although I still screw up every day. I am really at a place of peace with my parenting. And again, I do a lot of repairing still. Yeah. But yeah. It, is, it is worth the effort to take that 30 seconds, to take that pause and start not from a place of just emotionally reacting, from a place of what are they telling me? Complete game changer. Yes. What are they telling me? Yep. Yeah. I could just use the word magic all over and over about this stuff because really it just shifts everything, you yeah, know, right. the ways that we talk to our kids and ways that we interact with them and the ways that we understand them and validate them. Right. It changes everything. Any more sort of action items that parents can take after listening to this? We've said shift your thinking, incorporate sensory, yes. the different senses. Change the sensory channel. Stop talking mm-hmm. to your kids. <laughs> Stop talking, yes, unless they ask you to, and then you have to talk to them or else you're going to make it worse. <laughs> yes. I literally say to myself, Greg, check yourself. When mm. I have one of my kids do something that gets me and gets right to my emotional part and I want to react, I literally say to myself, check yourself. The power of that pause is just enormous. And at first it's hard and your significant other who's watching this go down may be thinking, you're going to let them talk to you that way? Or I can't believe you're going to let that happen. Mm -hmm. Just check yourself and then approach it from a place of calm and you will be very pleased with how it turned out. Yeah. And stop letting this idea of being permissive block you from doing what really you need and your kid needs. I think we really get hung up on that. Right. Or being embarrassed because somebody else is looking at you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I have anxiety and social anxiety. And so when my kid was super melting down in the grocery store and screaming that he hated me and that I was the worst parent ever, it was very hard for me to learn that the judgment of others didn't matter. What mattered was that my kid was having a hard time and I needed to help him. And, you know, yelling at him wasn't going to (laughs) help. But just, you know, that detachment from what other people are feeling or thinking about us takes a lot of work, (laughs) especially for some of us. It's even more work, but it takes work. Like everything we're talking about, it's not like flipping a switch. 
we have practiced this for a long time. And as you said, we still make mistakes, Mm -hmm. but we own up to them and we repair. And we show our kids that we're human and it's okay to be imperfect. And that's really what we're talking about here. You know, some things you just have to shut out, some things you have to shift, and a lot of things you have to keep practicing. And taking that breath and pausing is one that takes a lot of practice. (laughs) We're wired to respond in kind. We are wired to start yelling right back. Like that's our body's instinct. So overriding that takes work. Yes. But you'll reap unbelievable rewards from doing it. And you're going to build a generation of kids that are going to be co-regulators and we're going to change the world that way. Yes. (laughs) Such a good note to end on too. We can wrap (laughs) it up right with that. Let's change the world. One kid at a time, you know, One and, kid at a time. and just think about, you know, just showing that you care to a kid is changing their world. Just being interested in what they're interested in is changing their world. It does make a huge difference. Just a little bit at a time, we can really affect change. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that we got to have this conversation together, and I hope that we'll have future conversations together as well. Can we say this was magical? This was magical. It was magical. <laughs> Greg, this was magical. (laughs) I want every podcast to be magical. That's my new goal. (laughs) So apparently I use the word magical too much. (laughs) I love it. I I mean, hey, when things are super hard and they're more hard for your family than a lot of other families, you really attach yourself to those magical moments. (laughs) This is what you do. Yeah. So for everyone listening, please connect with Greg and learn about his work. His social media is amazing. You will learn so much just by following his social media. And all of those links are in the show notes for this episode, which are at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 187 for episode 187. I am just so honored that you were here and that we got to have this conversation and that you were able to share so much great insight and advice for the parents and some teachers who are listening as well. And thank you for having me. And thank you for the amazing work that you do. And this was absolutely fantastic. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I will see everyone on the next episode. Take good care. Thanks for joining me on the Beautifully Complex podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses and parent coaching at parentingadhdandautism.com and at thebehaviorrevolution.com. And